0: Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Consider that it's early in the morning on the Mount of Olives, the mount overlooking the great city of Jerusalem when Jesus rises from sleep. Perhaps in that space there on his mat, he gets to his knees, looks to the heavens, and offers an early morning prayer to his father. Then as the sun rises in the east, Jesus descends down the slope of the Mount of Olives and then up the slope to the temple there in Jerusalem. As you watch him ascend the stairs to the temple, perhaps a wide-angle lens brings a host of other people into your view. Yes, even this early in the morning, a lot of people are gathering in the temple. Why? Because Jesus is scheduled to teach. Jesus sits down on a stool and He begins to unfold the Word of God and the people are there just listening, enraptured by this one who speaks with an authority we've not seen or heard before. But as Jesus begins His lesson and as the crowd settles in, partway through His sermon, a commotion begins to be heard outside. It's a familiar sound of a struggle. Raised voices, sudden screams get louder and louder and you realize that this struggle is about to spill into your room. And it does. And with that, as it invades this sacred space of jesus on a stool teaching this crowd spills one of the most controversial beautiful but impactful moments that we have in the gospels and with that would you turn with me in your bibles to john chapter 8 with me this morning john chapter 8 as you turn there i want to make a couple of notes here at the outset of this message first of all i want to clue you to a bit of clarity about the brackets that you might see around this text in your Bible. It might be indented or encapsulated in double brackets, beginning in chapter 7 and verse 53 and going down to chapter 8 and verse 11. The reason for this is that there is a broad consensus of scholars that this passage was not in John's original text. A broad consensus about that, that it doesn't actually belong in the record of the Gospel of John. However, there is also simultaneously a broad consensus of scholars that this is indeed inspired Scripture, that there's no reason to doubt the historicity of this moment and no reason to doubt that this was in fact penned ultimately by the Holy Spirit of God. The question is, where does it belong? Where does it belong? So most scholars would suggest to you that it doesn't belong here at this point in the Gospel of John, but it belongs somewhere, and that's where I'm going to leave it. All right. If you have more questions about it, we'd be happy to talk about it. But I'll be honest with you, I don't know a whole lot more than that. I know some more, but not a whole lot more. Um, I think an application we can take away from this, though, is just that we stand on the shoulders of giants, scholars that have spent such, such faithful time and effort to discern by the guidance of the Spirit what is the Word of God. And God has revealed it. God has preserved it. And so we're going to leave it there. What you also may have noticed at the beginning of chapter 8 is kind of the scene that I just painted for you, that Jesus has in this context spent the night before this scene in the Mount of Olives or on the Mount of Olives. And early that next morning, he has risen and he's come down the slope up to the temple there in Jerusalem. And he's sat down on a stool, and he's begun to teach the people. And there are a host of people that have gathered to gather to him. And in that scene breaks verse 3. Check it out with me. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Let's just pause right here for a moment. You can imagine this scene with me. Jesus there on the stool, the crowd listening to him teach, and then suddenly this group of men comes into the room dragging a woman. Now, if you're a part of that crowd, you instantly recognize these men. For these guys are the holy men in a culture that honors the holy. So I thought of it this way if there are like trading cards in this day, these guys are on their faces on those cards. People are, you know, in junior high are trading these guys. These are the holy who's who, right? So you know who they are and you respect them. There's a great level of esteem for these guys in the room. Perhaps you instantly think that whatever they're angry about, because you see that on their face, whatever they're angry about, they're right to be angry about it. These guys aren't wrong. It's the holy. Who's who? But as you watch them, they drag this woman and put her there in the midst, the text tells us. So imagine this scene. There's the crowd listening to Jesus, Jesus there on the stool, and then just before him, between him and this crowd of angry men, there's this woman flung down in shame. She has been caught in the very act of adultery. Recognizing that this is very early in the morning you could presume that they are implying she was found in the bed of a man. That's not her husband. She was dragged straight from there to here. That's the scene. My friends and into that scene speaks the spokesman for these angry men. Verse 5. It says, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? number six helps us to see the motive i will say to you that their motives aren't good this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him pause right there so let's just take a deep breath and grab the scene jesus on the stool early morning it's serene Crowd is gathered to hear him teach. These angry men bring this woman, fling her in the midst, and say, Jesus, she's guilty. She deserves to die. What say you? Now, as you take in the scene, you recognize with verse 6 that these guys' motive is only really to trap Jesus, right? You see that there. It's only really to trap Jesus. Jesus is the one that they have in their crosshairs. And so with that, you understand that their motives are nefarious. They don't care one bit about this woman. Not one bit about this woman. They just want to use her. Moreover, they don't care one bit about righteousness or real justice. If they did, there's another question that needs to be answered. Where's the man? Right? If they actually cared about righteousness, if they actually cared about justice, where's the guy? Where's the dude that she was supposedly found in this adulterous act with? He's not there. They don't care about righteousness. They don't care about justice. They only care about trapping Jesus. They're just using this woman in this moment. Moreover, I could say, they don't really even care about the law. The law is just a convenient system that these authorities use, or perhaps you would say abuse, to manipulate the people in order to get what they want, to preserve their power, so they lay the trap. This is a trap it's an elaborate scheme to pit Jesus versus the law. It's Jesus versus Moses. Now, before we move further, we need to understand that it is indeed elaborate. It's a thought-out scheme. For, if you'll follow this, Jesus is between a rock and a hard place, humanly speaking. For if he goes, okay, guys, you're being a little harsh, let her go. Like, no, you can't stone her right here in front of all these people. You need to let her go. If, if he does that, what do they do? Well, they hike up their little robes and they run to the high priests and they say to the high priest, see, this is exactly what we've been telling you. He flouts the law anytime he gets the chance. He's a softy. He doesn't really care about the law. He's lawless. And he's in the temple teaching the people. We've got to put a stop to this guy. That's what they do or something like it. Okay. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, go ahead, you're right, Moses does say, the law does say that she's, if guilty, deserving of death, go ahead, stone her. If he does that, what do they do? It's very likely that they hike up their little robes and they run to the Roman magistrates. And they go, Romans, there's this man who is a rabble-rouser, he's a chaos causer, he's in the temple and he is exercising capital punishment, which is not his jurisdiction to do, oh, Romans right? You guys need to take him out. One of the other. One or the other. That's what they do. And so Jesus, humanly speaking, is between a rock and a hard place. You guys are tracking. But can I say this? And by the way, this is, just to let you know, a great spot for an amen. (laughs) Hang on. Hang on. (laughs) No human scheme, my friends. No human scheme, is elaborate enough to trap Jesus. Amen? It never is. No demonic scheme is ever enough. It's ever elaborate enough to trap Jesus. And we see that in this text. By the way, this whole effort that the Pharisees use of Jesus versus the law, this seems like their go to. It's like their one trick ponies on this and it never really goes well, right? They try to expose him, and they end up getting exposed themselves. They've tried it numerous times. We won't go through all of them, but perhaps the most famous of them is when the Pharisees, the the lawyers, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, and you get the image that they have been huddled up, thinking about how can we trap him? How can we expose him for the fraudulent, you know, Messiah that he claims to be? And they come out and they say, of the 613 laws, which one is the greatest they employ the the age-old goat debate what is the greatest of all time in the law and what does jesus do in that moment jesus says love love broken down this way love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself the principle of love is the fulfillment of the whole of the law on these two commands, Jesus says, hang all the law and the prophets. And you know what happens there? Everybody watching is going like, mic drop, right? And the guys that asked the question, they're like, mm. they hang their heads, they walk out, and everybody else is going, that was amazing. That was amazing. Not only did he shut the lawyers down, the Pharisees down, but he also actually helped me understand the law. Incredible, right? This is how it goes. So it doesn't go well for these guys. When they employ the strategy, but it seems that that's the only strategy they've got. So they bring it again here. Jesus versus Moses. Jesus versus the law. So question, what will he do this time? Well, he confronts them, no doubt. He confronts the supposed saints, the pretenders, the hypocrites. But notice with me how he does it. Verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. If you can imagine this scene, if I can use this stool, Jesus is seated teaching the crowd. And when he is asked this question, confronted with this question, with this woman uh, sitting here, he doesn't immediately respond. He pauses. And then he turns away and he gets down on his hands and knees there on the temple floor and he begins to write with his finger in the sand write with his finger on perhaps the dust that covered the stone floor now question what is he doing there think about that for a moment what is he doing we don't know exactly we don't know exactly why he does this we're not told but certainly there is truth to be understood in the space in the silence or in this silence it gives everybody there an opportunity to soak it in what's going on here this woman in shame these men in their anger with stones in their hands to really contemplate like is this is this really right is this just undoubtedly That's a part of what Jesus is doing. And by the way, as a brief point of application for you, when you are trying to run away from the truth, silence the voice of the Spirit, or quench your conscience, what's the one thing you don't want to do? The one thing you don't want to do is pause to think, or even consider praying. Why? You know, you know what you're doing. You know what you're bound and determined to do. You want to just go do it. Think later. Right? What does Jesus do in this moment? He creates space. A moment, several moments perhaps of silence. Well, these guys can't handle it. They can't handle it. Check out verse 7. And they continued, as they continued, the text says, to ask Him. So they continued to renew their proposition. Jesus Here are the facts. She's guilty. Everybody knows it. She's guilty. The law says she deserves to die. What say you? How are you going to judge in this scenario? Now, this doesn't happen, but if you'll humor me, hypothetically, if they used the Roman gladiator system, you know what I'm talking about? And if Jesus goes like this, she lives, or like this, she dies. In this moment, you know what Jesus does? He says, kill. He says, she dies. You might say, no, he doesn't. Well, look at your text. Just see it. Verse 7, He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So, You're tracking with me. Jesus says, okay, you can throw the stones if you can carry out your execution under one condition. Under one condition. What is that one condition? If you are blameless in this scene, guys, if you are totally righteous in this scene, wing away, throw that stone. And what do they do? They stand still. Jesus stops them in their guilty tracks. He confronts their conscience. He confronts their qualifications to carry out this execution. If you guys are righteous in this moment, blameless in your carrying out of this whole scene, let them fly. But they don't. But then notice with me that He again... you will seals their fate with silence again the text tells us that he stoops down verse 8 and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground so at first he appears to ignore them and there's this space they continue to say jesus jesus tell us your verdict tell us your verdict tell us your verdict he finally stands up he says okay you can throw the stones if you have no sin If you are the one who is perfect, if you are the one who is righteous, throw the stones. And then he gets back down on the ground and continues to write in the sand. And so the question we all have is what? What is he writing, right? What is he writing in the sand? And of course, we don't know exactly what he wrote, but we know what the effect of it was. We can make an educated guess. We know what the effect of it was. In fact, see the effect of it in verse 9. But when they heard it and saw Him, parenthetically, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before Him. In this silent space, all you begin to hear is thud, thud, thud. As these guys, one by one, the text tells us, drop their stones and in their own shame, turn and walk away. So, maybe Jesus was writing specific sins in the dirt, in the sand. Maybe He was writing specific sins that these were especially guilty of. And they knew it. They knew. He knew them. He knew their heart. Perhaps he was writing specific names of women that these men had been adulterous with or were lusting after. One commentator suggested, I thought this was really interesting, that he was writing Exodus 23.1 on the ground, which says this, You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Indicating the likelihood that they had maliciously worked together with the man that they had found her with. In other words, it was a whole setup. Because remember, the man's not there, right? There's a possibility, a possibility that they had set the whole thing up. They knew about the illicit affair, and so they set it up with the guy. And they made a deal. We're not going to drag you. We're just going to take her. Perhaps Jesus is writing Exodus 23.1. Either way, it ultimately doesn't matter for our understanding of the text what he wrote. For what he wrote had the effect of the hand of God writing on the wall to Belshazzar in Daniel 5. When the hand wrote there, you have been judged. You have been weighed in the balances, Belshazzar. And you have been found wanting. You have been found lacking. There is no, no righteous character in you. In effect, Jesus is saying to these men, you are not righteous. You are not just. You have no business, no business throwing a stone at her. And so, one by one, they dropped their stones and they walk away. They walk away. You might ask the question, why why does the text tell us it began with the older ones? Most likely because the older ones got it it quicker. They understood what Jesus was saying. And they understood more quickly than did the younger ones. And so, seeing the moment, they drop their stones and they walk away. Or... You want a humorous take? Nick Orduna said in our staff meeting, it was hilarious to me. Maybe it's just because they were tired. The stones are heavy. <laughs> We've been standing here a long time. <laughs> Who knows? But the bottom line is they all leave. Now, my opinion, this isn't scripture, but my opinion is that when the text tells us that they were left alone, I think. I think the crowd of people that are there to hear him teach, I think they're still there watching this. And that when the text tells us that they are left alone, it's the stage that's been set between the Pharisees, this angry mob, the woman, and Jesus. Amongst that scene that's been set, the Pharisees have hung their heads and they've left. And now Jesus and the woman are all alone, in my opinion, still in front of the crowd. And so we have this moment. And I would ask you, can you imagine this woman? I'm imagining her at this point with tears streaming down her face. She knows that she's guilty. That is not disputed in this text. She knows that she's guilty. She knows that she doesn't have a case, as it were. What she does know is that she was seconds away from being killed in her shame. But now her accusers are gone. And now Jesus has stood, in some ways you might say, out of respect for her, to look her in the eye. See it clearly as Jesus cares for the sinner. He confronts the supposed saints, but now cares for the sinner. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Of course, He knew the answer to that question. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What mercy, amen? What mercy. Jesus, Jesus doesn't condemn. In a bit of irony here, the only one The only one in this entire scene who had the right to throw a single stone is the one who doesn't. And in six months, according to John's timetable, in six months from here, Jesus will take the stone for her. Amen? Jesus will take the stone for you. For me. So that He can pronounce to you, to me, to this woman, I don't condemn! Are you guilty? Yes! But I'm offering mercy I'm offering grace for Jesus is the one that's going to fulfill the law that she has broken what a blessing this is but you also see in this that not only does he not uh, condemn he also doesn't condone he doesn't condone her sin he doesn't just sort of wave over it and say it's no big deal right As some have said, go and sin some more. No, Jesus says, go and sin no more. What does that indicate? I think it indicates for us, first of all, that Jesus was not ambivalent about sin. Not ambivalent about sin. Jesus, foremost among those presented to us in the Scripture, knows that sin is poison. He knows that sin brings about the wages of death. It is evil. It's a curse. He's not ambivalent about sin. It is sin that's going to cause him to go to the cross and suffer the price, suffer the penalty, suffer the wrath of God. Jesus is not ambivalent about sin. I think secondly, though, it tells us that Jesus changes her. It's a reminder of what we heard last week, Jesus changes people. We don't know exactly what happened with this woman, but my guess My belief is that we'll see this woman someday in heaven because she looked into the eyes of the Son of God. She looked into the eyes of the Messiah and received His mercy, received His grace and His instruction, go and sin no more. And though she did not live perfectly after that, my guess, my hypothesis is that she was changed. She, like the woman in John 4, like the woman at the well, she was totally different. She couldn't wait to go tell people about the Messiah, this one who knew everything about her and gave her grace all the same. I believe Jesus sets her free, my friends, to be free indeed. As I thought about this, I thought about the lyrics of the song. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope and no place to begin. This is exactly where she was. This is exactly where Jesus found her. Alone in her sorrow and dead in her sin. Moments from death. Lost without hope. No place to begin. But love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested. When that death was paused. Ultimately, when that death was overthrown in His resurrection and my life began. Oh, Your grace so free washes over me. You have made me new. Now life begins with you. Real life begins with you. Question, do you know that freedom? Do you know that freedom? If you know that freedom, you look at this woman and you go, I'm so, I'm so glad for her. She has been set free. Can you imagine what she must have felt? Free, truly free. So, the Pharisees were in the guilt business. Jesus was in the grace business. Amen? Amen. Praise God, that's true. So, all of us are watching this scene. In this moment here, all of us are a part of the crowd seeing this scene unfold and develop. But I would suggest to you that all of us are also on stage. We're also uh, on stage. We can be seen among that angry mob, but also with the woman. So question, have you recognized your potential place in the mob? Your capacity for this kind of hypocritical judgment? Think with me for a moment. To be very clear, this is not a prohibition against discernment. This this does not uh, negate, for example, the practice of church discipline and clear cases of unrepentant sin. What Jesus is calling out here is the rank hypocrisy of of these men, the unwillingness of them to look at their own lives, their capacity to minimize their own sin and their own culpability and just fixate on someone else. To lean against them to their own destruction and to their own ruin in order to vindicate themselves or satisfy their own sense of self righteousness. Do you recognize your capacity for this? Consider these questions Who are you tempted to gossip about anytime you get the chance? Who do you wish would go down in flames? Who are you tempted to drag, hypothetically drag before God to say, God, you should do something about him. You should do something about her. You are guilty too. I'm guilty too. These guys were in the business of guilt and they did not recognize, they refused to recognize their own sin. Time and time again, Jesus confronts them on this. It's very easy for them to scrap at the net in someone else's eye when they had two by fours and two by sixes hanging out their own eye. Brothers and sisters, we must evaluate our own eyes, evaluate our own hearts. We have the capacity to be in this mob. We must ask Jesus to remind us that we are the woman. That we are the woman. So, in part with a smile, could I ask, have you ever been the woman? And in parentheses, I would say, I hope the answer is yes. Have you ever been deeply and truly aware of your own sinfulness? Have you ever been face to face with the severity of the law? Recognizing your own shortcoming, your own failure your own inability to keep the law of God and recognizing what God clearly says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Have you recognized that if you were to stand before God with no one by your side, that you would also, like Belshazzar, like these Pharisees, be found lacking? Your righteousness does not meet the standard. We do not have any righteousness of our own. We are in desperate need of a righteousness that can only be provided in Christ. Have you been there? If you have been there, I hope that you can also say that you've been mesmerized by His grace. You've been broken to be healed, you've been desperate to be rescued, you've been low. And without hope. And you've looked and you've seen good news that Jesus came for your brokenness. Jesus came after the broken. He was righteous for you. And He went to the cross in your place. You deserve to die. I deserve to die. But Jesus went there for you. And He took the wrath of God. He took the stones for you and I so that you and I could be forgiven and free If you know that, you've been mesmerized by His grace. I want to encourage you to see it again this morning. Be mesmerized by the grace of Christ. Recognize again in this moment that Jesus is the only one who can throw stones. And He doesn't. He takes the stones for you and for me. I believe this woman understood Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen? Amen. Man, this is so good. Jesus is so good. Colossians 2. I saw Colossians 2 in a new way thinking about this scene. This week, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. One of the things that's so important to rightly understand the Gospel is that we not wash over sin. Jesus does it in this moment here in John chapter 8. This woman is guilty. Verse 14 of Colossians chapter 2, the record of debt stood against her. It stood against her with legal demands in tow. But, what's the good news, my friends? What's the good news? This, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus took the stones. Amen? Nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Verse 15 of Colossians 2, I see the Pharisees walking out there. He disarmed them. If you'll track with me, this is not Scripture. He disrobed them. They brought this woman in to expose her shame and they left disrobed, if you will. He exposed exposed them he exposed their hypocrisy he put them to open shame and ultimately as servants of satan he put satan to open shame amen triumphing over them in him praise jesus he is victorious and so the question is can you see yourself in this woman can you see yourself there On the floor in your shame, in desperate need of grace and finding it, hearing those stones fall, seeing the accusers walk, and seeing love in the eyes of Jesus. When you see that, my friends, when you see that, it will change you in multiple ways, but at least these two. Number one, it will change your view of and interaction with others. And then secondly, it will change your view of sin. Here's how it works, my friend. The more we are aware of our own sin, the more we are aware of our own sinfulness, the more gracious we are with others, the more patient we are with others, the more capacity God gives us, grows in us to love other people. So... Even when we approach someone with a concern that we might have about their life, it's from a perspective of humble, humble gratitude on what God has done for them. And a desire to see them grow, a desire to see them make progress. But more than that, those moments don't come apart from that person being introspective before God to say, God, what do you need to change in me? If I'm seeing anything in someone else, what do you need to change in me? This is how it works when we are encountering grace. When we are mesmerized by Jesus and being drenched with His grace, this is how it works. Yes, we love our brothers and sisters and love enough to speak the truth, but we do so in love and out of a heart of humble compassion, never looking down. Never from a pedestal. Why? Because we know we're the woman. I'm the woman. I've seen myself on the floor. So if you've ever stood underneath the waterfall of grace and you are just being deluged by the grace of God, what you want, brothers and sisters, what you want is for others to be under there with you. That's what you want. And your encounters with other people make them feel that way. You want them under the grace of God. So if you are being drenched by the grace of God every day when you encounter other people, you're leaving them a little bit damp by the grace of God. But if you're dry if you're not standing underneath the waterfall of God's grace, recognizing how much He's given you, how much mercy He dumps on you every day, if you're dry, it's going to be very easy for you to be critical of other people, judgmental of other people, difficult holding people. Very easy. This is why we need grace of God. This is why this place must be surrounded with an atmosphere of grace because we're all the woman. You guys with me? We're all there. Sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Stand under the waterfall, my friends. Stand under it be mesmerized by his grace. Grace. And lastly, can you just join me in being amazed at Jesus? Aren't you amazed by him? His brilliance in this moment? His benevolence at the cross. Hallelujah, what a savior. Amen. What a savior. As we think about His cross? We can understand that mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There, my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Amen? At Calvary. And that changes everything.